A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're looking at American foreign policy after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the announcement of a new security pact between the US, Australia and Britain. My guest is Derek Cholet, who's counsellor at the State Department in Washington. It's a job that's a mix of strategist and troubleshooter for Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State. In the past, the job of State Department counsellor has been held by some of the most influential diplomats in American history, including George Kennan, the intellectual architect of the Cold War. So, at a moment when there's a lot of talk of a second Cold War, this time between the US and China, it seemed an ideal moment to sit down with a senior American diplomat. How does the Biden administration see the world? This week, President Biden made his first major address to the United Nations. In his speech, he sought to put the much-criticised and chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan in context arguing that it marked the start of a new phase in America's approach to the world in which war would be a last resort. We've ended 20 years of conflict in Afghanistan. And as we close this period of relentless war, we're opening a new era of relentless diplomacy, of using the power of our development aid to invest in new ways of lifting people up around the world, of renewing and defending democracy, of proving that no matter how challenging or how complex the problems we're going to face, government by and for the people is still the best way to deliver for all of our people. But while Biden stressed diplomacy at the UN, a few days earlier, it announced a new security pact between the US, Britain and Australia, which involves America supplying nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. In a press conference announcing the new pact, Biden spoke of the shared history, including several wars, that binds together the three countries. The reaction to the new pact, known as AUKUS, has been pretty positive here in London. But France, which lost a major submarine contract worth billions, is furious, particularly because the French were told of the new AUKUS pact only hours before it was announced. Jean-Yves Le Drian, France's foreign minister, called it a stab in the back. C'est vraiment en bon français euh, un coup dans le dos. Je pense que c'est une, une rupture de confiance majeure. Moi, je suis vraiment... I spoke to Derek Cholet in London shortly after Le Drian's statement and just before things escalated further when France took the unprecedented step of temporarily withdrawing its ambassador from Washington. So I started our conversation by asking Derek Cholet about the importance, viewed from Washington, of the AUKUS pact. Well, this is a very important achievement, and it's reflective of the importance of the relationship we have with Australia, but also with the UK. It's the first time since the late 1950s that the US has agreed to uh, share this sort of capability with a, with an ally. The UK was the first, and now the Aussies are the second. To me, it's a signal of, of the Biden administration's commitment 
to security in the Indo-Pacific. Enabling Australia to have this kind of capability is quite significant. Why do they need it? Well, the the capability of the nuclear-powered subs in particular is substantial in the sense of uh, their ability to project power throughout the Indo-Pacific. But also the deal uh, over time could lead into other areas of military procurement, whether it's artificial intelligence, quantum, all sorts of stuff that is going to help define the militaries of the future. And so it is a testament to the strength of these alliances and the importance of these partnerships. Uh, it's not about any particular country, but clearly the U.S. has shown, I mean, this is something, in some sense, is a bipartisan mm-hmm. effort going back years of trying to project more of our diplomatic, economic, and military influence in the Asia-Pacific, or now the Indo-Pacific. And this is just the latest step in, in that process. But when you say it's not about any country, I mean, obviously the Chinese think it's about them. And it does come against the background of a very significant yeah. Chinese military buildup mm-hmm. for the last 20 years, which is to use the technical term, freak the Australians out. No question. And uh, the Australian-China relationship a few years ago was in a much different place than it is today. But it's also a signal of of the U.S. commitment to that part of the world. And I think given the larger conversation about where the U.S. is going and the future of U.S. foreign policy, I think showing again, and this is something that has been months in the making, that uh, we're capable of taking steps like that and prepared to is a signal of our enduring leadership. And since we're sitting in Britain, what is the significance of the British being involved? It's quite interesting to me that Theresa May, our former prime minister, instantly said to Boris Johnson, does this mean we're going to get sucked into a war over Taiwan? Does it? Well, (laughs) what it means is, obviously, because of the unique relationship between the UK and the US on this particular technology, having the UK be part of this was a natural decision. And I mean, I think, again, it's also a signal of the closeness of what is a very special relationship. And there's been a lot of talk over the last several months about the commitment of the U.S. to the U.K. And I think this is going to put to rest, I would hope, a lot of that discussion. Yeah. But of course, while it strengthened the relationship with the U.K., it's really damaged the relationship with France. Look, I understand Harris' perspective on this. Uh, This is obviously uh, a significant amount of of money. Uh, It's a big deal for them. Nevertheless, the U.S.-French relationship is very, very strong. Secretary Blinken has called it a vital partnership. We do so much with France around the world. We're going to continue to do so much with France around the world. I understand the consequences of the decision. We, we get it. We consulted with them prior to this and understand their unhappiness. But I think we're going to move beyond this. But I guess you can't really take the European relationship for granted. And I mean, in the sense that just before the Biden administration came in, the Europeans were on the brink of signing this investment treaty with China, mm-hmm. which America was not happy about, but it's sitting there in abeyance in the right. European Parliament. Right. I mean, that's the kind of thing I could see them saying, okay, we're going to go ahead with that now. Well, I I would like to think they're not, they would not do something like that despite the United States because they're making these decisions on the merits. And yeah. my conversations uh, with European counterparts since being back in government, but before coming back into government, They see China and the challenges from China clearly. Uh, This is not something European partners are coming to because they've just been convinced by the United States. The strategic convergence, I find, in terms of outlook, the challenges in the Indo-Pacific in particular, is dramatically different than when it was a decade ago, when during the Obama administration famously was trying to rebalance or pivot to Asia and coming over to Europe it was almost hard to have a dialogue on it because we just saw things differently. That's changed significantly. So I have great confidence in the ability of the transatlantic alliance to work together when it comes to meeting the challenges of the Indo-Pacific. 
And just talking about more broadly the China challenge, I mean, it strikes me that although, you know, in most ways, Biden and Trump, totally different. But there is a continuity. The Trump administration said great power competition is our thing now. And Biden more more or less has said the same. In many many ways, the outlook on China is one of the rare instances of bipartisan convergence in the U.S. Now, the way we go about it is a little different. And there were criticisms of the execution of the previous administration. First and foremost, addressing it is about being strong at home. And if the U.S. isn't strong at home, it's not going to be strong to deal with any challenge abroad, but particularly one as significant and multidimensional as China. Also, it's about ensuring that our alliances and partnerships are strong. And the foundation of of President Biden's approach and the core of his outlook on the world is the strength of alliances and partners. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the first eight months, there's been a concerted effort to try to make that happen. Understanding this is not going to be easy and there's going to be things we're going to disagree about. And that's sort of inherent in a partnership. Uh But the spirit is very much inclined to try to strengthen those. And what is it that's driven this new focus on China? Because the Chinese would say it's just a kind of reflexive American desire to be top dog. They can't stand a new rising power. And that's really all this is about. There's no question that China's behavior has changed over the last 10 to 15 years, whether it's so-called wolf warrior diplomacy or its own ambition is much more clear right now. Mm -hmm. I think many of us have believed for quite some time that this is what, what China was trying to achieve in terms of asserting its own influence around the world. We're just seeing that play out in much more stark terms, whether it's in the Indo-Pacific or here in Europe, of course, and watching, for example, the pressure they're putting on a country like Lithuania because of a decision to open a Taiwan office in Lithuania is just one small example of that. And I think that increasingly what I've been finding is that it's not so much the U.S. having to preach or try to convince European partners that we need to work together when it comes to challenges like a rising China. Now we're having a common conversation about that. Is there a risk, though, that this gets out of hand? I mean, people are talking about a second Cold War. I'm trying to think how it must seem from Beijing. They may be beginning to feel a bit encircled and so on. Could tensions get out of control? Well, we don't want them to. The China relationship is a complicated one. It's, It's not one that can be easily boiled down to one phrase. We have elements of the relationship that are highly competitive and which uh, we are in a genuine competition. We have parts of the relationship that are adversarial, where we fundamentally disagree on certain issues. And we have aspects of the relationship that are cooperative or that we want to be cooperative. And for example, climate change is one. So our interest is not to seek a conflict with China in any way. Nevertheless, we're going to stand up for our values, for our interests. Uh, We're going to stand by our friends and partners And to the extent that the Chinese have a problem with any of that, that's what diplomacy is about and what we're going to have to work on. Turning slightly to Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. obviously a lot of the message you're trying to send to allies over China, over Russia, is America's steadfast, America's back, Mm -hmm. as Biden has said repeatedly. But Afghanistan seems to send the other message. You know, it looks like a bit of a debacle, to be honest. Well, I mean, look, I think it's, it's important to sort of set the frame here, which is, Obviously, President Biden has has said for many years now that he believes that our mission was accomplished in Afghanistan some time ago and that the U.S. was better off trying to diminish our presence there, still remain engaged, but with an eye to being able to focus on the challenges of the future, including challenges, for example, in the Indo-Pacific. He inherits a situation in January of this year where there was a deal struck by the previous administration 
to uh, have all U.S. forces out by May 1st. And at the latter part of last year, all but 2,500 U.S. troops had been pulled out. We were at the lowest number of troops in Afghanistan since 9-11. And by the way, the Taliban was at its strongest since 9-11. During that period that the previous administration had negotiated a deal, the Taliban was not attacking U.S. and coalition forces because the agreement was since we were going to leave on May 1st, they wouldn't attack us. So the challenge we faced was, do we stay beyond May 1st or not? And the decision by the president was we would stay beyond May 1st, but to execute an orderly departure. So that was the decision. That's what was underway. We were not yet fully out when the Afghan government collapsed. And that was something that none of us were expecting. Chairman Milley, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said that nothing that he saw in any of the analysis or intelligence of what was going to happen said that the Afghan government was going to collapse within 11 days. So we were faced with a prospect of executing a withdrawal, which was the largest airlift evacuation, I think, ever, 120,000 people over the course of a little over two weeks. It was a very, very difficult situation that was really only possible, by the way, because of the strength of our partnerships and alliances around the world. Because, Mm. of course, when people left Afghanistan, they didn't come directly to the United States. We still have well over 10,000 Afghan refugees sitting in U.S. military bases around the world, including here in Europe, awaiting their processing to go into the United States or elsewhere to be resettled. So I don't think the idea that somehow the U.S. is withdrawn militarily from Afghanistan is a signal of weakness of any kind. And my view is our colleagues in, in Moscow and Beijing would like nothing more than the United States to double and triple down in a place like Afghanistan. You said that General Milley and that in general, the Washington kind of consensus was that this government was not going to collapse this quickly. Nobody foresaw that. Well, not just in Washington. Everywhere. Everywhere. But if you had foreseen that, would you still have gone ahead? Well, look, I don't want to say in hypotheticals, but uh-huh. I think that the fact of the matter is, and the, I think the president's made this very clear, he believes he made the right decision that when it comes to the long-term U.S. interests, when it comes to the challenges we're facing in the Indo-Pacific, that the idea that the U.S. spends another 20 years in Afghanistan, which is, that was the prospect we faced. It was not keep 2,500 troops there to not be shot at, live in relative peace, and we just stay in perpetuity. The choice was, if we stay well beyond May 1st, and we say we're not getting out, we're back at war. We're adding troops into Afghanistan to continue the fight. One of the hard lessons we all are going to have to grapple with, not just in the United States, but everyone who was part of this effort over the last two decades, is what went wrong, not just in the last couple weeks, Mm -hmm. but what went wrong in the last 20 years. How should we right-size our expectations moving forward? Of course, we accomplished a lot in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. I, for one, would stand by a lot of what we have done there. I mean, people sacrificed there for good reason, and And there has been a lot of gains made there. The challenge moving forward will be to consolidate and maintain those gains. But we did not achieve what we wanted. Do you think it draws a line under the period of interventionism? I think that maybe it just darkens the line a bit. It was the line was already there. I mean, certainly you saw in the wake of Iraq and the original intervention in Afghanistan, uh, a sense around the world. And we saw this play out. I mean, I would say actually probably Libya and Syria were Mm. more consequential in some ways in terms Mm. of drawing that line in which there were decisions made, you know, in one case to intervene, Libya, but then not to take on a major Afghanistan-like effort. Nation building, yeah. And in another place, Syria, neither to intervene nor to take on, of course, a nation building effort. And of course, both cases are very, very difficult. I was looking back at the book you wrote about the Obama years, right, and right. at that time you were pretty gloomy about Libya in 2016. 
any more reason to be optimistic now? Well, I think a little more optimism. I mean, we've had a ceasefire in Libya that's held now for almost a year. There is a political process underway. I was the latest in a series of folks from the outside, from Europe in particular, who've gone into Libya recently to try to encourage the interim government to move forward for the planned elections by the end of the year. The good news is those elections are technically ready in terms of executing them and conducting the vote. The problem is there's not the legal basis yet for those elections, and that's something that we're trying to push Libyan partners along. So, look, there's a lot of difficulties. Libya is deeply divided, factionalized. We have foreign forces there, many, many challenges. But compared to where things were two years ago, it's in a slightly better place. And our goal in working with our partners around the world is to try to keep them on that track. I mean, Libya is one of the places where there's been Russian intervention and there's Russian troops in Syria and so on. Does this expanded Russian role in the Middle East, is it something of concern to you in Washington? Or do you think, well, please yourself, guys? Look, I mean, Russia has been in Syria for decades. Syria has been Russia's closest military partner in the region for decades. So it was not really a Russian intervention into Syria. It was more of a Russian escalation in Syria. They had a naval base there for a long time. Libya is a different matter. And of course, Libya is tricky because it's not Russian regular forces. It's Russian mercenaries, the Wagner group that have clear ties to the Russian government, but it's not official Russian government. Nevertheless, they are very problematic inside Libya. And that's why our message is to say we need foreign forces out of Libya. And that's something we very clear message we sent to our Russian friends as well. You know, it's interesting because they're certainly projecting influence in a place like Libya, but it's very indirect, right? Because it's not formal official Russian forces. It's these mercenaries. But it's sort of similar to China. We don't seek a conflict with Russia. Like China, there are some issues that we'd like to work with Russia on and that we are trying to work with Russia on, for example, on nuclear arms control. But there are many, many issues related to Russia and their behavior in Europe in the Middle East and elsewhere around the world that are very, very troubling. And I think one of the things that the Biden administration has worked very hard to do with our European partners is to have a unified front regarding our concerns about Russia's behavior, particularly on human rights or what they're doing in Ukraine or elsewhere in Europe, and therefore not just in the messaging, but also in the actions, for example, moving out on sanctions together is something that I think has been very important. Taking a step back, I mean, you've written books about American foreign policy sort of you have a period in and then you reflect right. on it and write right. a book. Right. It's the, somewhat therapeutic to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I hope you're taking notes <laughs> yeah, as you exactly, go. Right, but right. Um, So I was looking at the book you wrote, America Between the Wars, mm-hmm. about the Clinton years. Yep. And one of the things you did, I think, was situated in the kind of intellectual environment, which was a very optimistic period. Mm-hmm. I mean, post-Cold War, everything seemed possible. Things seemed to be moving in the right direction feels like a very different atmosphere now, you know, a different global atmosphere, but also a very different atmosphere in the United States. You have the storming of the Capitol and so on. How does that affect the way that uh, the Biden administration looks at the world, the domestic divisions that you have? Yeah, well, I mean, first, I don't want to get into history, but one of the things we tried to do in the book, and thinking about the 1990s, it's in retrospect, easy to think it was all easy and everything was looking up. But in fact, there was a sense that we had won the Cold War but we were losing the post-Cold War and the world was sort of fraying and coming apart at the seams and we were dealing with all these conflicts like in the Balkans or in Rwanda and elsewhere that were very, very troubling and problematic and we didn't have great answers for. But I think you've put your finger on something that I believe is very important and obviously 
President Biden believes is very important. And Tony Blinken, as Secretary of State, believes is very important, which is our domestic situation. And that's why, I mean, President Biden has talked about building a foreign policy for the middle class. It seems like an obvious point, but nevertheless, in the foreign policy world, it seems somewhat unique, which is domestic policy and foreign policy are intertwined. And you can't think of one without the other. And so therefore, when you are thinking about what America does in the world, it's intrinsically related to our strength at home. And that's, I think, particularly the case given a multidimensional challenge like a rising China. And I think that our democracy and the challenges that we've seen to our democracy over the previous uh, few years, one could think that it would be a reason to sort of go deeper into a shell or, and say, we're not going to talk about democracy or you know human rights or anything like that. If anything, I think it gives us, from a foreign policy perspective, a sense of determination, a little bit of humility, but also empathy and understanding how hard this is and how fragile this all can be. And therefore, when we talk to countries about the importance of taking steps to strengthen democracy or having elections, you know, we do it from a position of humility. We are always trying to get better. We're going to make mistakes, learn from our mistakes and improve. And that's sort of a message we're trying to send to our partners, but also those aspiring to have stronger democracies. Yeah. And last question. I mean, you talk about how partners see America and the message you're trying to get across. Everybody's wondering now, post the Trump years, Mm -hmm. you know, how stable is America? Mm -hmm. How much can we rely on it? And when you talk about a foreign policy for the middle class, in a way, isn't that just a sort of slightly cozier way of saying America first, that domestic issues matter first? And while that may be totally understandable from an American mm-hmm. point of view, if you're an ally, you're kind of thinking maybe the era of America as the global policeman is coming to a close because the domestic base of support for that is no longer really there. Look, I think that, first of all, there's a false nostalgia about the time when the U.S. called all the shots and policed the world and you know everything went its way. I'm not familiar with that era. Uh, I've certainly never served in government when that was the case. And that's why I think President Biden's been very careful. When he talks about this, he doesn't talk about it as isolation and we're not going to be engaged in the world. If anything, I would posit that the U.S. is more engaged in more places, in more ways than we have been perhaps ever before. Oftentimes, the measurement of American power, American influence, or American commitment is how many troops you have deployed somewhere, right? And I used to work at the Pentagon, and that was certainly something on our minds. But of course— Life is much more complicated and rich than that. And so President Biden's talked about putting diplomacy first and making sure that it's not just about what our military is doing, as important as that is, but it's about what our diplomats are doing, what we're doing economically. This is still challenging at home. All of us, I think, in the democratic family of nations, we're having challenges when it comes to trade, whether it comes to our own democracies. And I think this also then points up what President Biden's talked about as sort of the fundamental challenge of our time, which is democracies versus autocracies. And we have autocratic states that are making the case that their system is better for delivering for their people, for delivering for their security, for delivering for their economic well-being, for delivering for their basic needs, educating their kids. And the challenge for democracies, whether it's the U.S. or the U.K. or in the Indo-Pacific, is to show that we can deliver. And he firmly believes that we can But that's why there's this intrinsic relationship between home and abroad. Because if we can't deliver at home, it's going to be very, very hard to make that case abroad. That was Derek Chalet, Counselor at the State Department in Washington, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. 
I hope you'll join me again next week. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.